0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today we're joined by Todd Severson, who, well, I've had the great pleasure of working with, not just in Salt Lake, but also on some other projects. And I have to say, Todd, you're one of the smartest event management people I know, and so I'm very grateful to have you on this podcast. How are you doing? Uh, I'm, doing I'm doing amazing to
1: be. Uh, it's amazing to be talking to you, Christian, actually. I, I think I'm going to launch in before you even allow me to, in, before you interject and take over from the whole thing, to say that what you're doing is an amazing record of those experiences that we've all had. It's so fulfilling to go back and look at some of those podcasts and hear the stories and the voices of these people I know so well and retelling these tales. So I commend you for taking this initiative and doing it because I haven't seen this done before in any other games. And it's it's a nice little um, time capsule of the time, the people, the experiences. It's very special. So congratulations.
0: Well, that's very kind of you, Todd. I really appreciate it. And thanks for adding to our little tapestry of memories You know, I've actually heard from other events uh, like the Manchester 2002 Commonwealth Games and London 2012. Uh, the Rio games in 2007, the Pan American Games saying, hey, we should do something like this. And I'm like, yeah, somebody who worked those games should definitely do something like this. It's been a lot of fun. It's certainly not a moneymaker, but it's a labor of love. And, and it's so fun to hear everybody's stories. And I'm looking forward to hearing your stories. But before we hear your stories, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and where you're at? So I'm speaking to you from Sydney, Australia.
1: Uh, and uh, this is home for me it actually was home for me from before salt lake 2002 though i have the american accent i'm here in sydney and i'm i've hung up the olympic rings i haven't been working on the games since rio uh and i've gone back to kind of the real world you're working for an events company a creative agency here in sydney
0: well you now win the award for the guest who is farthest geographically from <laughs> salt lake city uh yeah. sydney australia so that's awesome and uh also It's interesting to hear that you were able to successfully escape the orbit of the Games. How did you pull that off? It was a
1: five-year plan, actually. It's funny. I, I was, it was before I joined London, or just around then, I set my sights on Rio. And I thought that by 2016, that would have been, that would be 20 years since I started in Atlanta in 1996. So I aimed for that as like, okay, that should be enough. I should try to go back to the real world by then. And um, well, the position I ended up in was was good for my career and mm-hmm. led me to other things. And that's, um, that's sort of how it all played out. But it's, I think it's rare to find that I didn't ever believe it when someone would say, what's your five-year plan? But I really did chart that course and found a way. It sounds like I was trying to get out of a drug addiction or something. <laughs> like I avoided my addiction to the games and made a plan of how I would break myself of the habit.
0: <laughs> that's so amazing. Yeah. I've got my daily dose of the you know, two pills of games. games, oh, feeling the withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome that you were able to get out of it. I want to come back to something you just said a moment ago. You got your start in Atlanta. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that start and then how that ended up taking you to Salt Lake? I I took a look, and I'm not sure that the 30 to 40
1: minutes I've seen online of other people is enough time, but okay. I went to school in in Wisconsin and got my university degree in communications and the arts and art history, and I thought I would run museums after university, but I was also working a part-time job during university selling tickets in a box office, so it was easier to just get a job after university in other box offices, and so I moved from Green Bay, Wisconsin to Omaha, worked for an opera company and was ran a box office. Then I got hired by the Long Beach Civic Light Opera, went to LA and uh, worked for them. And a month after I moved to LA, they filed for bankruptcy and I had to help wind up their company. And then I'm sitting in California, unemployed for a month. And someone that I knew from Wisconsin who was um, worked at the ticketing company, she, had worked the, she was working in the Atlanta games. And it was the same software that I've been using year after year, used in Atlanta. So she said, well, if you don't have a job, you can come here to, it, to Atlanta. And I said, fantastic. And it was literally like a job offer on a Tuesday or Wednesday. And I packed up the car and I drove across the U.S. and I started on Monday and the rest is history. And then suddenly I was on this whirlwind tour through the names.
0: Holy cow. <laughs> now, but, but, but the thing is, is when I met you and Salt like you weren't a ticketing person, were you?
1: <laughs> I was a recovered ticketing person. I had given it up. <laughs> <laughs> I Atlanta was hard, but it was fantastic. It was amazing. It was ridiculous hours and nonstop. And it was the first, it seemed to me it was the first online tickets we had ever done. And it was a huge event and under resource, but breaking new ground in that realm. And then Sydney did this. had the same software. So some people that I worked with in Atlanta, John Basiljavec and Beverly Clippert, went back to it or went to Sydney and um, recruited me a couple of years later. And then I went and did Sydney Games. And Sydney Games was even worse as far as ticketing went. It was a really hard project. And there was all these bloody controversies and ticketing was a bad word and for the sydney games because they overpromised and underdelivered. and i decided i can't do that again so i stopped um uh, i finished the SoCog games and it was amazing games and i'm sorry everyone else sydney was the best games i've seen 10 sydney was the best <laughs> so uh so i thought okay that was that was enough of that i will just now get a job here in australia and it was You know, all of the Olympic people out there know that there's always a downturn after a game's in a game city, and it was hard to get a job. And my phone rang one day, I think it was June of 2001, and it was Stephen Miraboli calling from Contemporary International, who was working on the project in Salt Lake. And he said, hey, I always enjoyed working with you across the table in Sydney from evs or spectator services to ticketing because we worked very closely together about how the venues were going to run from a spectator perspective uh how about coming and helping us out here in salt lake you're american you can work here we need some help so um, that happened really quickly. And suddenly I was on a flight uh, f- uh, around the 4th, 5th, 3rd of July. I think I was there for 4th of July in, in Salt Lake and started. So I started with SLOC in the EVS team in 2001.
0: Wow. So you've gone, you've been in a lot of places. You've gone from Wisconsin to Atlanta to Sydney, who knows where else in between. And then you end up in Salt Lake City. That's a lot of places. Um, what did you think when you arrived? Oh, <laughs> it's almost like you read my my script, Christian.
1: Um, I, I, I that's one thing I thought about talking about here is that when I when I left the Midwest to go work in the West Coast and then Atlanta, I thought, okay, well, I'll never go back to the Midwest. And then after actually after Atlanta, I did a year in Buenos Aires doing ticketing for football stadiums uh, for the argentine football association and then i something clicked halfway through that project and suddenly i stopped being an american trying to force argentinians to do things the way i wanted and i started to actually expose myself to the culture i'm like okay so this is the way you do it here well let's find a way to make that work for you and then i suddenly had a different view of the u.s and my perspective of my perspective of working there and i'm like oh there's there's a world to explore why would i go back there so um i did go back to the u.s because i had left um after argentina i had to go back to rejoin the job i was in and then the sydney games came calling and that was like okay good this is where i belong so i didn't really once salt lake came up came up i didn't really like the prospect of coming back to the u.s and working i was like oh I wanted to explore more. I wanted to do things, more things overseas, and and I kind of had, um, I can see now in retrospect, I had this sort of barrier about Americans overseas and coming back to the United States. And I didn't want to, um, I didn't have much respect actually of coming back and working in the U.S. market. But that changed going back to Salt Lake because the people were so amazing, and the culture and the 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 warmth of that city was so laid back and just relaxed. And it was a, such a great project. And the organizing committee had such heart that I sort of hung up my, my biases, I guess, about rejoining the American workforce and um, really embrace what they were doing. But I still did it some with a strange sort of Australian perspective. And I tried to mix both worlds, I guess.
0: I asked this Todd on one other podcast, um, with another individual who's worked a lot outside of the U S the UK English versus the U S (laughs) English. So you're working in Sydney, you get all used to spelling things in the Australian English way, right? Then you got to come back to the States and you're using different words and things are spelled differently. What was that like getting used to writing stuff in American English again?
1: It. Uh, I made lots of typos on uh, on the uh, in the documents and everything that we were doing, and then you learn to okay. Who's my audience? This is who I'm writing for. Instead of just tone, you also spell that way. And I've been flipping back and forth from uh, American English, Australian English, Canadian English, which is different, UK English, which is different. The Greeks want to speak uh, do things in US in American, no, in UK English, whereas. The Italians wanted American English, I don't remember. So it was, you constantly have to keep on changing the way you spell realize and color and organize and all the rest of those fun
0: ones. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny, the little things, the little things. So you come here, you make this transition from ticketing to spectator services. Uh, What specifically was your role in spectator services both before and during games time? (laughs) So I, when when Mirabelli contacted me,
1: he said, it's EVS, it's, it's it's Spectator Services, plus we've also got this other scope of where we're training the volunteers on how to do security. It's fantastic. It's a mixture of everything. So we're really running the front entries, and it's, it's a great plan for winter games. It's the right thing for Salt Lake. So, okay. So we have, um, we're doing ticketing. We do the tick-taking and ushering on the inside as Spectator Services normally does. And we're also doing marshalling to get to the seating. And we're also doing queuing at the security operations. And those volunteers can swap into roles to do bag searches and monitor the magnetometer and say green light, red light, and even do wanding. Let's give this lovely grandma from Bountiful a a metal detector wand and she can body search people. I love it. Fantastic. Only in Salt Lake. Uh, it was a great plan. <laughs> well done, Doug Arnott. Uh, way to blend those different workforces and combine those jobs and be more efficient with uh, roles. Uh, and then September 11 happened. And that all changed. And uh, that's, of course, one of the things I remember most about Salt Lake. And uh, that experience changed the job, changed everyone's world, of course. but. The the weight and the pressure then on those entrances and the security screening operation suddenly became a whole new world and different level of importance. So by then we had already um, we had already written and recorded, uh, yeah, and recorded all the training, and we suddenly had to change our operations because obviously they weren't going to have the volunteers searching bags anymore. So Secret Service came in and um, they said, okay, what what were you planning and what we're now going to not take over, but how do we adjust to what you've done to fit what, what new measure we are defining of what has to be done? And that was a, a very, very fulfilling and collaborative experience because the, it was nice to see the government working with a private entity like SLOC and finding a way to still keep volunteers involved, but have National Guard step into roles that we had actually written the training for and we adjusted to their new parameters. But then we still conducted Train the Trainers for National Guard on the curriculum that we had written. So it was a, it was a, a, a special time because it showed a, a lot of good collaboration, I think, in, in finding the, the way to make it work for that changed circumstance.
0: Well, you mentioned there in your response, September 11th and the change the the change, you described the changes that you had to make as a result of that. Do you remember where you were that morning? I was, uh, I was in my
1: apartment, popped on the news and I thought I heard something. I was like, what the hell did I almost dropped the F bomb? Sorry there, Christian. Uh, what the hell did I just hear on the news? Wait. And I ran out and turned on the TV or, or, Looked at the TV because it was just running in the background, and then I realized that what had happened with the first plane. I started to call other people, and I called my my partner at the time, who was back in Sydney, Australia, and told, woke him up because it was an ungodly hour at the, in the morning. I said, "Look at the TV! Look at the TV!" And um, I called a few other friends in Salt Lake and said, "Did you see this? What's going on?" And then I think the second plane hit, and we were all watching at that point, and it was shocking and i I think it's uh it's an important part of my salt lake story because as the leaders of the evs group and uh, steve mrabley graham steverson lachlan uh uh clark and i spoke what are we going to do do we go into the office what's happening no we're not coming to the office some might but you know state just hang out we'll figure out what's going to happen and what we need to do and what the response is i think the building was locked down they weren't going to let people in like all these things happened, but a number of us were like well what do we do and in the end i ended up calling a lot of our people on our team and i think i had something like i don't know my my mind feels like there were nearly 30 people 20 to 30 people came over to my apartment and we were all watching it on tv together and there was nothing to do that day, but just sort of absorb the importance of what had just happened. But, and we were you know, thinking of our loved ones and family and all around the US and what else that means to the world as we're watching things happen and close down around the world. But I think as something people often forget with Games Gypsies is that when you leave your family and your home, wherever that might be, to go work on site for an extended period of time you develop a new family and that new family are the other ones usually the other ones from other places sometimes that you it's locals also but it's the other ones from other locations that also need a family and you form this new kind of family together and those were the people that were in my apartment and we all experienced that together and i remember um i think it was the SLOC 10 year anniversary i happened to be in salt lake for it I forget one. And I talked to some people and they were like, I still remember your apartment. That was the most amazing experience being able to be together in that important time because we were apart from everyone else we wanted to be with. But I, it kind of, I've always looked at that moment as uh, emblematic of the Games Gypsies and what happens to people when they're overseas and how they bond uh, together in unique circumstances because of their shared experiences of being a foreigner in that
0: city. I want to come back to this term games gypsy that you mentioned. You're right. There is a small community that evolves over time, but a community of people that kind of move on from one games to the next. And one of the nice things about that, I think, is that when you do arrive in a new city, oftentimes there's someone there that you know from a previous event. And so you're not coming in as a complete stranger. So um, what was that like for you? You know, make this transition from Sydney to Salt Lake City, but knowing that there were people there basically waiting for your arrival that you already had some connection or some relationships with.
1: Absolutely, that's, that's, that's reassuring. And it's almost one of the things that you do, I learned after a few, you find out who's there and you think, and A, you can get the advance intel from them about... organizing committee how it's structured about the city what it's like to live in and where to find an apartment and all that but it's also that sense of reassurance that um you've got a a cushion or a or or a support network there and it is it's special because someone's speaking your language so i remember um on the first day anne-marie Emer now holland was taking me around and showing me so this is this venue this is here and she said well this is kind of like that in Sydney. but so it's almost like she was able to provide a translation of the past experience and help orient me about where I am now and explain uh, how it how it works. it, it It's a, a crash course in that city in that organizing committee and and in that culture. And then day by day, uh, this happens now, oh, it was happening. Every time I go back, I've been doing some work in Dubai on Expo twenty twenty. and um every trip there's a new oh my god it's so great to see you last time i saw you was athens 2004 oh my god so great to see you it's like it's it's a it's, it's a old homes reunion but it's also um the reuniting of those gypsies is that familiar face across a sea of people in an environment that you just don't know and you feel like an outsider but it not only does it reassure you it's funny when the client who they think oh i've i've got this consultant and they are going to do great things for me but I'm going to tell them what I need and it turns out they're better connected in, your, in their organization than they are <laughs> and they know more people and can get to other levels and access people because they met them from Sport Accord last time it was in Dubai and like just the networks of people are amazing. I talked once uh, You, I wonder if you were involved in those conversations I think it was like post Athens before Torino we were talking with Mike Lloyd about wouldn't it be amazing if we could do this special software that would have everyone indicate on their CV which games they also worked in and which team they were in so you could make one massive structure and you could see who worked with who? Hello. That's LinkedIn, baby.
0: We could have done it then. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, we, missed our, we missed our opportunity, didn't we? <laughs> I want to come back to these people. You mentioned it's and it's so true. It really is all about the relationships and it all comes down to the people. So why don't you tell us about some of the people that you worked with in Salt Lake? It could have been people that you worked with in previous games or it could be some people that you met for the first time in Salt Lake. Uh, You found them hilarious or you found them inspiring or you learned a lot from them, and I know it's hard to go through all the names and people, and you probably leave some out. But who were some of those individuals that you know had a real impact on you?
1: Oh, uh, my favorite utans. Uh, I can't really say that, but the first the first names that come to mind are oh shit, it's Sally Larson and Tammy, and I forgot her last name, who was also in our training training team, and um, I just was. So impressed by the brilliance and the power of their thinking and the way that they approached things. And they Sally in particular taught me so many new things that I took forward in my career and used and ripped off of her. And she knows sometimes when I ripped off of things from her and use again in Athens and other locations. Just the 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 quality of the people that you made an all-game city, but also particularly Salt Lake. They were the t- two names that first come to mind. And there's a, a cast of characters uh, throughout another organization. That I have to think harder about that. But Ellen Babers, who wasn't from Utah originally, but we worked together frequently, and May, the team that I actually knew from Sydney, but then were working there in Salt Lake, that then worked with us further. From everyone from Lorraine, Fiona, Hiam, Wendy, et cetera, et cetera. There's all women, all very impressive women, actually. Uh, but, um, I think that even to this day, I'm calling back on old Olympic contacts and saying, Hey, I got this project. It's in Townsville. Do you think you'd be free? I had that conversation with someone yesterday. So it's, it's, uh, there's lots of, um, I don't, the the quality is amazing when you think about what those people have achieved because you've seen it firsthand and what, and you know how impressive they are when put under pressure.
0: Yeah. I remember many of those people that you talked with and you're right, uh, So Steamer Maravillie calls you from Contemporary International, which is not the same as the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. It was a different organization contracted by the the organizing committee to deliver event services there in Salt Lake. And that was a model that was used for a while. Were there any particular challenges associated with working as a contractor versus being a SLOC employee?
1: Well, I think... I think it all comes down to budgets and the way they set up their financial structure. Because on one hand, the organizing committee says to companies like CI or others who they want to embed, they don't want to go out and recruit this team that they don't know much about how to recruit for, but they want to put the responsibility on the company that they're hiring to deliver according to the contract. So they say, we'll embed you into the organizing committee, and you'll be as if you are just like everyone else. But then the people in finance say, well, there are contractors so they don't get this, 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 this. They don't get the meal voucher. They don't get the whatever. They don't get the uniform um, because it saves money to do that. But meanwhile, there's someone in commercial that had negotiated the deal that they get those things because they're embedded and they want to smell, look, and breathe like a SWOC employee and be part of the broader workforce. I've seen those negotiations after the contract deeper into the project where... It's always a debate to say explain why those people at the desk next to the other SLOC employees should still get the metal souvenir cup at one year to go. Because if you don't give it to them, then they will be disenfranchised and disappointed and they will feel lesser and and in the end there's always enough cups and you can find your way to make it happen. But it it is a it's a dance. You have to always uh, follow, it seems, in every organizing committee to convince why, because people who, had, who are usually doing making these decisions haven't done this before, but to convince why by the time you get to games time, it's important that they're all wearing the same uniform. It's important that it's seen as one team, one tent, as Sandy Hallway used to say in Sydney, and that they're embraced as just as good as a full-time SLOC employee. They just don't get those nice bonuses that SLOC employees got.
0: Yeah, as a slot employee, I, I have to say I can't <laughs> complain about the uh, about the bonuses. I can't complain about that. But when it comes to spectator services or event services, sometimes they get a different colored uniform yes. than the regular staff, and so. And so you do have some distinguishing mark that way, but it's not really about whether you were a contractor. It's really about the function that you're performing.
1: I actually nearly bought back Mountain Shadow for the Rio games because I had uniforms under me, and we decided to not go Mountain Shadow. We did something far more colorful. But um, actually, I think Salt Lake was the last time. Yes, Salt Lake until Rio. Salt Lake was the last time that the organizing committee did FA distinctions, but we... Did bring it back for Rio f- because of the benefit of seeing medical is that sport operations as this front of house is this and operations is that color um, so uh, yes you're right The a different color can distinguish people in different ways <laughs>
0: Todd, give us a couple of uh, really funny stories. you got any anything that uh, when you think back to it, man it's like, yeah, that I can't remember that, and that, like it was yesterday, and it was hilarious. Okay.
1: Um, I think i I have to see if I remember it correctly. Opening ceremony, and I believe it was the Olympic opening ceremony. All the pressures on the opening ceremony, of course, for those that don't know, it's the first time you do almost any everything and um first time with spectators first time with me a first time with of of many aspects of the organizing committee actually going in for real live broadcast to the world and um we had a few very difficult dress rehearsals learning how to do things and then also a difficult day of the opening with Huge queues at cast screening, trying to get them in the afternoon, and then deploying, redeploying people to other locations because the media was all backed up, and uh, the Secret Service was wanting to take apart every single lens and trying to decide. And that was like we we had queues of a hundred media trying to get into the opening ceremony, waiting because it was too slow. Then front of house started to uh, the operation switched to front of house, and that was challenging and had to get people through faster but still maintain security and and of course the, the ceremony was amazing and I rushed around to, to see that moment of the lighting as, as from the back of some stands before going back to another area. But during the loading of the venue, we had an operation to support people in wheelchairs because there were different types of seating for different types of uh, needs. Some people needed a wheelchair space and some people used a wheelchair, from the organizing community because they couldn't find get from the gate all the way up. So they would just borrow a wheelchair to get up to their seat. And then they would walk carefully down a couple steps to get to their seat, and then would hop onto a wheelchair to get back out again. Some people had bought a ticket on an aisle, and they would use their own wheelchair to get all the way in, they would leave their wheelchair parked, and then they would get back, they would go to their seat, and they would go back to get their wheelchair. Well, at the end of the night, we were emptying the seating bowl, getting everyone home. They're all wearing those ponchos and excited about what's happening. And, and I go over to one section of the seating, and some people aren't leaving. And I find that there's a woman who was in her seat, and her partner went to go get her wheelchair, and her wheelchair is missing. It's her own personal wheelchair, and someone had mistaken it as one of the loner wheelchairs. It's gone. Some of the wheelchairs that we had also loaned to people to get from point A to point B, they're gone also because they decided to take them home. So in the end, the venue was relaxed. All the spectators are out. And I ended up driving my, whatever the car was, a Tucson or something. I drove it in one ramp through the security, up a ramp inside the venue, onto the main concourse, picked up the lady from the loaner wheelchair that we had got her to and I took her home. <laughs> she got in my car, and I drove her all the way home because she had no way to actually get home. And I thought that that was one of the best examples of full EVS services from seat to
0: home. And I don't think it's ever been replicated in a game sense. Wow, that's an amazing story. Holy cow. Now I have to ask a question. Did they ever find her wheelchair? Did Lorraine Foster, you know, at the info booth managing the lost and found and she that she's like, hey, I got this wheelchair here. Who does this belong to?
1: Um, She didn't, but she was on it because she was on the lost and found for the city also. And she was like chasing to find that wheelchair to see if anyone ever turned it back in. So I I don't know, actually, but I I can ask her. She's here in Sydney.
0: Before we get to our last assignments, any other stories that you want to share? I think one thing I'd mention is that um, I, though I gave up the Olympic rings until
1: someone wants to give me a really nice consulting contract while I've gotten limited work on here in Sydney, uh, <laughs> I found that after Rio, um, I actually had the the honor for the first time to run the torch in Rio. And I kept the torch, and I post-Rio moving back to Sydney – I started to feel that um, penchant or saudade of for the games. I watched the Pyeongchang games on the TV and didn't really wish I was there, but I wished I knew it. I wish I understood it and had been part of solving that particular puzzle, which is always the fun part of the games. And I've found that my way that I'm kind of satisfying that, that itch is I've been starting to collect torches. So I've found all these different buyers around the world and I've slowly been ticking through all 10 games I've worked on and I'm still looking for one from Salt Lake. So if anyone has a Salt Lake torch that they want to sell me or gift me that is just gathering dust, it would have a very special place in amongst all the others here at, in Sydney. So keep that in
0: mind to your listeners. All right. Well, that's the, that's the call out to the listeners, right? Exactly. Let's help Todd find a torch. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Todd. Well, let's wrap this thing up. The first assignment that we gave everyone, and we've given you as well, is to choose a song that reminds you of your time in Salt Lake. What's the song?
1: So I I looked at this and I was like, what's the right song? Um, I, I had a couple thoughts. Um, one was, I remember every time I would drive back down from skiing, usually with Lynn Oxley, down from Park City back into Salt Lake, we were exhausted and euphoric, and we'd listen to Dido. And that has a sound of Salt Lake for me now when I listen to it to her again. But I think that's more about that experience in skiing, because I did that again in Athens. Uh, Strange that there are ski fields in Athens. Uh, but for me, I think the, the song that I equate with Salt Lake is Aaron Copeland. And it can be Appalachian Spring or it can be, I think it's called Rodeo, which is one of the segments in the opening ceremony. And for me, I had known Copeland before, but hearing Appalachian Spring, it sounds like the American frontier. It sounds like ambition and prosperity and new beginnings and um, searching out for something special, which is so much about the story of Salt Lake and sometimes the story of the games, that that I, I really equate that with the landscape of Salt Lake. I went back to Salt Lake many times after the games because Steve stayed on there and I continue to work for CI. And whether it's summer or winter, Appalachian
0: Spring just sounds like it's all like to me. Uh, Aaron Copeland, one of my favorite composers. My mother, uh, it's one of her all time favorites. We oh. always had it playing in the house when I was growing up. And uh, we're originally from the Bay Area, and he's a Bay Area composer. And uh, so, um, huge fans of Aaron Copeland and huh. super happy to add Aaron Copeland to oh. our Spotify playlist. Our next item up, the food. You have a particular restaurant that you like to frequent while you were here in Salt Lake City? So I lived above Cup of
1: Joe. That was um, that was my go-to on the way to work. Um, and, and I also had thought on the, my list that Groovy's was very special because I was amazed that in Salt Lake City, Utah, is the first place I would go drink beer and watch a movie. I don't know if that exists anymore. I love Chimayo. I had to research to remember the name specifically, Chimayo on Main Street, Main Street in Park City, which I don't think is open anymore. And The Globe, of course, which I think so other listeners at, or other um, people on the podcast had mentioned to you. But I think the best <laughs> pleasure and the best food were the sneaky brunches that Skye Oxenham and I used to sneak off to. In between doing... Where, where were the event the venues? Oh, that was it we were going from ogden and we had to go visit scott lasker at the at the peaks but we we found an excuse to go up into the mountains into park city first and swing around to sundance and have brunch and then go down so that was our ritual stopping for brunch in sundance and that's my favorite food
0: sundance is absolutely beautiful and yeah you could definitely do worse than going up to sundance for brunch that's amazing Todd, you've been so generous with your time and sharing all of your stories to wrap us up. What is your feel-good moment of the games?
1: I think it is the night before opening ceremony when Mitt made it possible for everyone to go as a, for all of Slock to go and experience the torch and pass the torch from employee to employee and contractor to contractor in that private session that we had at the, uh, shopping center, whatever that was called. And that, that was, that for me was, uh, that sense of camaraderie, everyone getting together, leaving their venues and coming for this one time, even though you're very busy and you're worrying about the the, the opening and the first day of the games, taking a moment to be together and literally pass the torch from person to person, be able to touch it and have an experience and, and appreciate what we were all about to embark on. That's my tingle. Moment of, of of memories from Salt Lake is being together with that group of people and um, embarking on creating something wonderful for the games.
0: Well, that's a great memory to end on. I hope that we can get some of your friends and colleagues on this podcast to share their memories also. I'd love to have Sky and Lynn and Lorraine and Fiona and Ellen and all these wonderful people to share their stories also. Now, Todd. Um, If people want to learn more about what you're doing today or they want to reconnect with you, what's the best way for them to do that on social media or otherwise?
1: Well, I'm on LinkedIn, of course. Um, And uh, if you want to know about the company that I work for now, it's called AGB.Events. And uh, we do digital storytelling for large public events, for museums. We have an exhibition we just recently opened at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., We do light sculptures, we do building projection and um, really interesting things that magnify the human spirit in unique ways and bring new stories to people and in a different kind of event. So you can find me on that website
0: also. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much, Todd, again, for the time. I really appreciate it. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you next week. Todd, thanks again. Thank you. Great to speak to you.